Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Okay, as we uh, come to our time in the Word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we ask you to bless us now as we reflect on and meditate on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that we will be granted understanding, we'll be granted insight, in order, in order we can discern the mysteries, the magnificence of your word, and we would walk more faithfully and more closely in footstep with our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of the advantages I have at college is nobody knows where my office is. Who knows where my who doesn't know where my office is? Who doesn't know where my office is? Yeah, because my office is literally at the far end of the college, and it's there. And people say, "Where's Michael Bird's office?" And they go there, and they want like there. Uh, they put me as far away as possible from every other human being. <laughs> but it's a massive office. It is. I mean, it is seriously. It is massive. It's bigger than Brian's office. I, I have an office like a Latin American dictator. <laughs> I, I, call, I call it the Casa Palacia Alberto. I don't know if that even makes sense in Spanish, but it sounds cool. Now, the reason I have that I was given this office was because of my stature. And when I say stature, I don't mean intellectual stature. I mean it has a very low ceiling, and I, there are only three faculty who can fit into it. It's me, Jill Firth, and Diane Hawkridge. Everyone else bumps their head. So I was given that state. But, you know, you know I, I just want to speak up for some of the little people Amen. out there. Some, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's, 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 it can be hard being tall, reaching for stuff on up the top shelf. But there have been some very famous little people. Most famously of all, Napoleon, from which we get Napoleon Complex, little man with an attitude. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, they're all under five foot five. And other heroes you might have, Frodo Baggins, <laughs> Tyrion, otherwise known as Pink Dink uh, Peter Dinklage, R2-D2, uh, actors who are very short as well, Michael J. Fox, Tom Cruise, Zac Efron. Yeah, I know he's cute and he can sing, but ladies, he is not tall, dark and handsome. <laughs> Famous short musicians like Mozart. Prince, Beethoven. You know, my favorite tennis player at the moment is Daniel Schwartzman because he's my height. All these other tennis players at the moment, they're, they're built like gigantic praying mantises. These tall people, seriously, like you look at Zverev or Medvedev, these tall guys with gangly long limbs. But Schwartz, he looks like, he looks like he's my height and he can mix it with the best of them. And there are some good advantages in being short. Number one, airline seats. It's not that bad. Like, you know, I, I think poor, poor Graham Stanton, when he's on a plane, his, like, his knees are around his ears. I feel sorry for the guy. Less back injuries. We always win the limbo contests. We can hide in a crowd. And it's easier to be carried. I mean, let's face it, if we go on like a, a, we go on a five-kilometer hike, and if Brian Rosner and me both sprain an ankle... Who would you rather carry the way back? <laughs> it's true. And also, somewhat with embarrassment, there are also fashion advantages. I can shop in menswear 
and boys wear. It's funny because it's true. But the most famous little man in the Bible is none other than Zacchaeus. Now, I'm sure you all know the song. Maybe you should say it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in that tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Uh, yeah. Well, there, well done, well done. Somewhere out there, there is a Sunday school teacher who is now crying because <laughs> they made an impact on you. But this, this, is, this, this is a fun story. It's a great story. You've got Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who wants to see Jesus. Remember that line. He wants to see Jesus. Uh, and so the, the story has everything. It's got like a bit of comedy, like, you know, this wealthy, you know, renowned tax collector climbing up a tree. It's got, it's, got, it's got drama because Jesus suddenly invites him. It's got conflict because the, the crowd grumbles. And then you get like the big comeback story, okay? Zacchaeus, I mean, he, he sells his possessions. He commits himself to Jesus and, and he's, he's going to follow Jesus faithfully. But this story, I think, is so important in terms of the Gospel of Luke uh, in, in the Christian story because it tells us what salvation is. It is a big, shocking and unexpected rescue. Jesus does not come to save the righteous. He does not come to tell people they're good and give them a little pat on the back. He comes to save those who have been written off, those who are beyond the pale, the no-hopers, the people who put on there never want to see this person saved. The story of Zacchaeus, this is what the story of the prodigal son looks like in practice. This is what happens when a, a son is lost and then found, when he wanders off and squanders all his riches, when he becomes greedy and rapacious. This is a story about homecoming, being, being brought back into the family and a family that is characterized by forgiveness and joy. That's why it sums up so wonderfully many of the themes we see in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Salvation, forgiveness, joy and inclusion all done with a strange and unexpected moment. Now to put this passage in context, we're coming to the end of the big travel narrative. In the Gospel of Luke, that starts around 950-51. Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. And it's during this, this, this long journey, Jesus tells all those amazing parables. You know, the, the prodigal son, the lost coin, warnings of judgment, teaching about discipleship. Okay? His own passion predictions. Okay? The, royal Davidic, uh, the royal Davidic deliverer is coming to Israel, but it creates a crisis within Israel and people are challenged. Will they respond in faith or will they respond in disbelief? Will people follow Jesus on the road? And as he comes towards Jerusalem, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is, as we would say, if you look at verses 1 to 4, I would say Zacchaeus goes out on a limb. 
Zacchaeus is a, is a chief tax collector. Now, they seem to have some sort of system of tax farming that the Romans or the, the Herodians used. So you would basically put out a, like a tender contract. Okay, we need to raise this much money, and then beyond that, you can keep the rest. So that, that's, that's how it worked. And, and uh, Zacchaeus, he's a chief tax collector. So he, he's, he's kind of you know, running his own little racket if you like, on this. So he's got to collect a certain amount of money, but anything beyond that, he can keep for himself. Now, you can imagine how this was open to grift. It really attracted people who were greedy, uh, mercenary in their business activities. And there was a constant abuse of public, uh, uh, of the public. You could see how people who did this would be really despised and hated. Uh, I don't, know, I don't know of any uh, nationality or ethnicity where they praise the virtues of being a tax collector. I don't think anyone says, I hope my, my son or my daughter grows up to be a tax collector. Uh, no, no, one, no, no one really hopes for that. But despite all that he is, despite the fact that tax collectors were not liked, I mean, if a tax collector went into your house, it rendered your house impure. Josephus tells us that certain villages would not accept charity from tax, tax collectors. You know you're not liked when they won't even accept charity from you, okay? So knowing what this, this, this person is and he's disliked, he's on, he's on the periphery. He may not be amongst the poor and the destitute, but he's definitely an outsider. He's the type of guy, if he walked down the markets, he probably needed a bodyguard or two to go with him. But he hears Jesus is coming to town and he's curious. He's probably heard all the stories about Jesus on the rumor mill you know, on the vine about this, this, this amazing prophet, this rabbi, possibly a Messiah who's now passing through this way. And he wants to see Jesus, but he's got a few problems. Uh, there's a big crowd and he's short. So he, he does something a little bit scandalous, not, not a real bit of decorum, but he gets ahead of the crowd. He finds a good place to be perched up in a tree so he can see Jesus. It probably looked very silly, very beneath him, but he wanted to see Jesus. In verses 5 to 7, we get the real, uh, the, the narrative crux of the story, okay, where a little man meets a big saviour. Look at verses 5 to 7. When Jesus reached the spot, that's you know, where Zacchaeus is, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And then note this, all the people began, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, every story needs a little bit of tension or, or an unexpected twist. And Zacchaeus probably thought he was there just to have a bit of a gander, just, just, just to see for himself who this, this Jesus of Nazareth was. And yet in the middle of this sort of, you know, you might call it a little bit of a parade or, or a bit of a crowd. Jesus, Jesus kind of stops, looks up at the tree, and then he addresses Zacchaeus personally. Okay, He addresses him by name. Now, I don't know how Jesus knew Zacchaeus. Maybe he knew him by reputation. You know, he was one of the worst tax farmers. Maybe he was just you know, the oral life and or the oral tradition of village life in, in, in that part of that part of the world. However, he know, it is Jesus knows him and Jesus calls to him and tells him to come down you know, straight away because I must, you know, it is necessary, I have to stay in your house. 
and the crowd is offended by it. Now, why couldn't Jesus stay with the local rabbi or the village elders or the people who are cheering the most? Surely someone else has got to be far more deserving of having the celebrity prophet, this celebrated rabbi, come to the house other than the guy who is literally the most despised person in the town. Okay. Now, I'm not very good with AFL metaphors, but let me give you one. Imagine a hypothetical scenario where a team, let's call them the Melbourne Demons, okay, win the AFL Premiership. Okay, imagine, I know it's hard, but imagine. Imagine they're having that big ticker tape parade down Melbourne and there's the captain of the Ds, you know, sitting on the front bonnet of the car. Okay, well, who's, who's the captain of the Ds? Let's call, him, let's call him Michael. So Michael is on the bottom of the car. He's got the AFL trophy. And the crowd is going wild and electric. And all of a sudden, he stops the car and he sees a guy in a tree. And the guy's name is Eddie Maguire. <laughs> former president of Collingwood Football Club. Kind of resigned in disgrace because he says a lot of foot-in-mouth things. Okay, And the captain of the Ds says, Eddie! Grand final party at your house, brother. Let's make it happen. And then him and all the players and the coaching staff, they all go to Eddie Maguire's house for a big party to celebrate. Eddie Maguire, who's one of the least popular figures in the AFL community in terms of clubs and everything. I mean, how do you think the fans would respond? What? You're not going to the clubhouse? You're going to Eddie Maguire's house? Now, again, I know all analogies break down, but when I said Eddie Maguire, all of you had a kind of look of a mixture of confusion and revulsion on your face. That is probably how they felt back then when Jesus said, I'm going to Zacchaeus' place. I'm not going to, not going to break bed with the local elders. I'm not going to go hang out and bless the, um, you know, the local charity center for the poor. He wants to go and be with Zacchaeus, despite the fact that um, eating with him would make Jesus a partner in crime, despite the social ostracism that tax collectors experience, despite the fact they call Jesus a friend of sinners, he's willing to take on the shame of his association with others. And then we see what the effect is upon Zacchaeus himself in verses 8 to 9. So this is where the, the, the dinner is going on or, or something like that. And Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheered and cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's, that's, that's serious interest rate. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know, it's, it's in, the, in the middle of this dinner. I don't know what you say. Zacchaeus has an epiphany. He has a moment of contrition. He has a moment, dare we say, of redemption. Okay. He is going to follow the way of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, there's a lot said about wealth and riches okay, and possessions and attitudes towards them across the Gospel of Luke. Okay, the dangers of wealth, 
the snare of wealth, how it can really affect your relationship with God, how wealth and riches can make you liable for judgment. I mean, possessions, money, wealth, it's quite a dangerous thing. It can imperil your soul. Okay, Think of the story of the rich young ruler whom Jesus encounters. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the law of Moses. And he says, yeah, great, I've done all that. And then Jesus pulls a Columbo on him, for those who know Columbo. He says, just one more thing. Sell everything you have and come follow me. And then the rich young ruler does what? He goes away very sad. Yeah. Zacchaeus does what the rich young ruler should have done. He gives away his possessions and he wants to follow Jesus. Or you remember Jesus is saying, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. Zacchaeus, he gets through the needle. Maybe because he's short. (laughs) I don't know. But despite being rich, he's able to get through the needle. Which goes, which goes to show the inclusive message of Jesus, okay? Uh, it, it, yes, it's for the outcast, the oppressed, the economically destitute. But on the other side of the ledger, it's also for those sinners who are amongst the, the, the wealthy and the well-to-do, the influential. It's for the haves as much as the have-nots, okay? So Zacchaeus makes a, a, a good response to that. And then... By by showing the signs of contrition, repentance, by his actions, stating his faith in Jesus and Jesus' way of being Israel, Jesus' way of embodying the kingdom of God, by having that type of faith that others have not shown. Not many of the religious leaders, indeed some of the individuals, some have looked at Jesus and said, just another crazy prophet, just another messianic pretender, just another rabbi with too much self-confidence. But no, Zacchaeus says, no, this, this guy must be the son of David people are talking about. This is the prophet we've been waiting for. And then he experiences joy. That's the sign of messianic salvation across Luke Acts. Joy knowing he is now in the right. He is back in the covenant community. And this leads Jesus to say, this was my job description. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That is the work of Jesus, seeking and saving. It's like that shepherd that Ezekiel talked about. That's what he's going to, the Messiah is going to come to. He's going to gather the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is the one who will lead the flock and go get that one sheep that has wandered away. He seeks and saves the lost. He doesn't come to those who deserve it. It's those who are precisely who are undeserving that he comes to. Those who you would think would be the last person to do that. If, If I had to sum up the meaning of salvation, of seeking and saving the lost, the image that comes to my mind is John West Tuna. What's... You look a bit confused and stunned. Who remembers the motto of John West Tuna? It's the fish that John West rejects that makes John West the best. John West doesn't accept any tuna, does he? He only accepts the best. What Jesus is saying, he accepts the fish that John West rejects. Now, I know that. 
because he expected, you know, he saved me. And I was definitely on the rejected list. Okay, I did not grow up pious. I was not particularly religious. I used to write atheistic poetry in my sort of, you know, weird Nietzschean existentialist adolescent crisis of trying to figure out who I am. <laughs> Stuff like that. But, but God, I know, I know he accepts the fish that John rejects. He accepts and saves those who don't deserve it because he saved me and he saved you. You did not deserve it. You were not worthy of it. He didn't say, well, you're more worthy than that person. No, you're, you're all unworthy. We are all unworthy. And we have experienced Jesus saving us in our lostness. So what this text, the story teaches us is that Jesus is still out there looking to save the lost. Jesus is going to call them, like the Zacchaeus, the Trevor, the Natalie, the Jacob, the Beth, the Angela. He's still out there with them. He wants to share a meal with them. He wants to inspire them. He wants to save them. The problem is we have, we still think in our mind that some people are more savable than others. Some people are more worthy than others. We have our own list of people who we think would make great Christians. We have our own, I think that, that person would make a, a great Christian. And then there's that person who I hope never becomes a Christian. That type of thing. You know, I, I think of some of the wealthy, powerful people who I, who I, I don't want to see become Christians. I have, I have a list. I have a long list of people who are, who are I mean, wealthy, I mean, who, who embody wealth, corruption, and privilege, and make me angry. Probably, I mean, for me, to be honest, I mean, the n number one, and this is probably a pathological sense I have, it's former Labor Senator Stephen Conroy. Okay, this is a little bit you know, weird to focus on one individual. But he was a Labor Senator, but now he's a lobbyist for the gambling industry. Now, I, 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 I grew up with gambling addiction in my family. It, it caused a lot of pain in my family and, dare I say, in my body. Because of this. So I've got a lot of anger. In fact, I have to confess, uh, I tried to get Tim Costello to set up a charity boxing match between me and Stephen Conroy. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, it's gone a bit too far at that point, I know. <laughs> I know. But I thought, surely, surely, uh, you know, this is, but what happens if Stephen Conroy wants to see Jesus and Jesus invites him in? Am I going to grumble like the crowd? Or like the elder brother, you know, in the, uh, the parable of the prodigal. Am I going to grumble? Or am I going to be joyous that the day of salvation has arrived? That's what we've got to remember. Jesus is still out there to seek and save the lost. And I believe people do want to see him. One thing that amazes me is despite how secular our culture is, although there can be certain anti-religious tropes and, and motifs, whenever they put on the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, it always plays to a packed house. It always plays. There is something great about the story. I, I won't necessarily affirm all the theology in it, but, but the story, it, it is elusive. I mean, they keep making Jesus films and people keep watching them. And it's not just Christians, it's, it's other people too. I think people really do want to see Jesus and we've got to remember that Jesus wants to see them. 
And often it's going to be through us that that encounter happens. Okay? So when, when, when you're thinking about inviting someone uh, no, to, to a church event or just to your home or making friends, daring to get out of that little Christian bubble maybe you live in, it's a good idea because Jesus wants to seek and save the lost. And on that note, let's pray. Our Heavenly Lord, uh, Lord uh, we hope we never forget that Jesus is in the business of seeking and saving the lost. People like us. And we pray that it is through us that people might see Jesus and rejoice. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to not grumble at others, not to discriminate in who we think is savable or unsavable, but be the ones through whom Jesus seeks and saves the lost. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.